Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Citizenship is a community act. Democracy gets its power from the people. The shrinking of people participating in that process over time has landed us in a more polarized space. This is How to Be a Citizen from Pantsuit Politics. Over four episodes, we talk about how to vote, how to debate, how to think about our relationship to our government and our communities. Join us as we think about what America in 2020 should be and what we should be to America. Hi, everyone. This is Megan from the Pantsu Politics Extra Credit Book Club. And as we continue to speak with the How to Be a Citizen series, I want to invite you all to read with us. The Extra Credit Book Club is a quarterly subscription with an independent bookstore in Franklin, Indiana, called Wild Geese Bookshop. And that is something that my Indiana Hoosier heart absolutely adores. Every quarter, you will receive books on topics that Beth and Sarah are going to be discussing on the podcast. And then all readers can join us on Facebook and Goodreads as we discuss books together. So you don't need to be an extra credit subscriber in order to be a part of these discussions. Right now, for the How to Be a Citizen series, we are taking a deep dive into the Federalist Papers. I hope that you join us, and I can't wait to read with you.
This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for the third episode in our How to Be a Citizen series. Okay, we have talked about the three branches of government, how America is designed, some of the assumptions in that design. We have talked about how we are thinking big picture about our country and our values. Today, we want to talk about being a citizen very holistically, How do we engage with other citizens? How do we engage with media? And then how do we engage with our ballots as we apply those principles? You know, the first week we spent a lot of time thinking about the relationship between us as citizens and our government. But there's so much more to the role of citizen, the identity of citizen, and the institutions and people you interact with. You know, there is a cultural component. There is a huge, huge aspect with regards to media and the role media plays in informing us as voters and sort of fueling the debates we're having with our fellow citizens. Because, you know, when we say citizenship is about community, sometimes that's going to be in close relationship and close connection with another person. But there is an aspect of public debate of the exchange of ideas that happens in a broader context? And how do we move around in that public space of debate in the age of social media? How do we move around in the public space of debate, community debate, the free flow of ideas, when everything can seem so fraught, when there is misinformation, when there is sort of cancel culture? How does that all work together? And how do we navigate that as citizens? And that brings to mind the other aspect of American life that's always hovering over these other conversations, which is industry. We talked last time about how Alexander Hamilton repeatedly talked about America as a commercial republic in the Federalist Papers. And as you get into discussions, especially of media, which is a perfect intersection of culture, government, and industry, We are all approaching, I think, our political stances and our political speech and our political participation with a sense of scarcity about our place in industry. If I do this, will I lose my job? If I do this, will people think differently of hiring me? If I do this, will people continue to buy my products? And that adds a layer that is more prevalent because of social media. But I also think as you dig into our history, that layer too has always been there. I definitely think the hardest part of all of this is we're trying to talk about two simultaneous areas at the same time. We're trying to talk about cultural debate and policy debate at the same time. And that's really hard, not because they don't inform each other, but because... The stakes are obviously different, but not necessarily by default higher in one area than the other. And I just think that sort of definitional problem that sometimes we're fighting about free speech and one side thinks we're fighting about the ability to maintain cachet in the culture and you're fighting about 
actual safety, I mean, safety is like a whole situation in free speech debates, you know, that makes it really difficult. We're all in different, you know, we say this all the time. Human beings are complicated. Some people are stepping into this arena for the first time and are trying to learn. And we don't want to squelch that. And some people have been driving this debate forward for decades, and it's their actual job. And so trying to talk to both of those groups at the same time is hard. Trying to engage in topics, cultural topics that touch on policy issues where the stakes are high without shame or cancel culture is something I think we've shown we're not particularly good at. Again, I don't I think you're right. I don't think this is new. I think that this sense of the stakes are high in public debate was definitely around during the Federalist Papers, during the founding. I was reading Alexis Coe's George Washington biography this weekend. And, you know, she does this really good job of talking about how George Washington was basically estranged from all the other framers that served in his cabinet by the end of his first term. And a lot of it was he particularly didn't like the way that Jefferson engaged in public debate, which was anonymously (laughs) through the media, um, that he took it too personally and he made it too personal. And like they got to a point where they just didn't speak. They stopped speaking and did not speak again in their lifetimes. And so I think this idea of you're taking it too far, you don't understand the stakes, I don't like the way you make it personal, like this is not new. This is not something that we are trying to figure out for the first time. Do I think Twitter makes it harder? Yes, I do. But it's not new. And as always, that gives me a great deal of perspective. And I don't know if hope is the right word, but at least an understanding that as citizens, we are not engaging with how the heck do we do this in public? How the heck do we do this through media for the first times? And I think that's an important starting place as we talk about our personal media consumption because it is a frequent refrain from listeners, from just people in your lives, from your family members, that media is just so polarized now and it's Mm -hmm. impossible to get accurate information. That also is not new. And I think this would be a good place to hear from Michael Berman and Chris Beam again We had a conversation with them about the state of partisan media around the formulation of the Constitution, and it was a great reminder that, in fact, partisan media was almost the expectation and baseline for most of our country's history. We talk about media and politics as though it's a relatively new convention, and I would love to hear your reflections on the evolution of media impact on politics. Well, back in those days, media was very partisan, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. Right. It was it was there was literally just this short window from end of World War Two until basically the rise of cable TV, where the media was their business model was that they would be nonpartisan. And 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 for good reasons. Right. There's only three channels. If you're going to compete, you have to get everybody. You have to appeal to everybody. And so that's why it worked. And. Now we've obviously come to a point where we're back to this kind of uh, partisanization of the media that wasn't there before. I do think there's also niches for, you know, there's a, there's a model, there's a market for people who just want 
an objective accounting of the facts. And, and so you see those kind, those kind of things rising. But yeah, there's, there's no two ways about it that, that um, you can, in ways that echo but transcend the, the penny dailies of the 18th and 19th century, where you can just saturate yourself with one partisan point of view. So that's not an environment they were unfamiliar with. No, the only thing they did differently was they knew they were talking to people who were, you know, smart landowners, um, educated. And so they had to make those partisan arguments in favor of the Constitution in ways that did not veer too far from genuinely good arguments. <laughs> well, and you know what? I think that that's you can see that sort of parallel even now with you know, Trump just doubling down on this culture war, race war, like even in an age where we're not reading paragraphs, we're reading posts and we're liking and there's, I think, a real fuel to an emotional response. It's like you still get people being like, ew, no, like, no, no, ew, yeah. no, that's not. Mm -mm. If you don't accept the idea that at the core that everyday people have enough common sense to rule themselves, then democracy is, is inherently impossible. Mm. And so, you know, yes, we can all be fooled. Yes, we all have biases. But yet, over time, you, you just have to believe that the majority, well, it's, it's Lincoln, right? You can fool all the people some of the time, some of the people all the time, but you can't fool all the people all mm. the time. And if that's not true, then, what are we doing? then we might as well set up a dictatorship. I really love that historical perspective they provided, because I think we have a myth in this country that public debate is based on this sort of bucket of facts that are completely neutral and all the way agreed upon. And then we everybody goes to the bucket picks out the facts, and then we debate the facts. And I'm just not sure that's ever been true. I'm not sure that's how it ever works with human beings. And I think if we release the pressure on ourselves to engage with media that way, I need to find, I need to fill my bucket with wholly neutral and completely accurate, agreed upon facts. Like if we could just like ease off on that expectation, I think the public debate would feel less fraught. Absolutely. And I also think it's important to recognize that the existence of bias, we say this all the time, especially when we're traveling around the country talking to people about news consumption, the existence of bias doesn't always mean the existence of falsehood. It usually mm -hmm. doesn't mean the existence of falsehood. Are you getting someone's prioritization in what they choose to cover and emphasize? Of course. But that is always going to exist because no one has the perspective or cognitive ability to accurately provide a succinct account of everything relevant to every news story. It's just not mm -hmm. possible. And so in that regard, you know, we often advise people choose news sources that hold themselves accountable. Do you use a news source that provides transparent corrections when they've gotten something wrong? That's a good sign. You know, not that there are never any corrections, but that they are transparent. Transparency about what has been edited to reflect new facts 
or what has been recently updated versus what's been sitting on this website for 10 years without anyone revisiting it. There are good indicators of people trying to do their best to give you good information versus people trying to form and shape your opinions about what information you're taking in. The advice I often give people is pick one source and engage with it every day. I also think we have attached this idea of like every news story is a research project. And so you just need to find every source like attainable about this one story so you can decide what's true. I think that is disempowering. I think it's defeating. I don't think it's realistic for most people's lives. I don't think every single story, even big crises like COVID-19, need to be treated as a research project because research projects are not individual pursuits either. In the theory, you have a an institution in, within which you're engaging. You have advisors and co-workers, people who are pushing you to see the flaws in your own research or your own conclusions. And so if you go to YouTube, even to Google or Wikipedia or whatever, and say, I'm going to figure this out for myself, you are inevitably going to encounter your own logical fallacies or holes in your own perspective. And if you're doing it by yourself, then you're never going to see those. Like, there's not going to be somebody going, but what if? Because the internet and the way the algorithms work will just push you into this stream that sustains itself, reinforces itself, and confirms all your conclusions. And so for me, I think what's really powerful about instead of saying, well, I'm going to figure this out, shifting to an approach of I'm going to engage with this in a small way every day is way more enlightening, is way more illuminating to what's going on. So... You know, I listen to Up First from NPR every morning when I'm getting ready for the news brief, which feel free to use the news brief as your one source. Uh, I do a news brief on IGTV every morning. But when I'm preparing for that, obviously, I engage with a lot more sources than is the reasonable for an average American to do. Like you, I, I start with Up First, but I also read the New York Times. I read Politico. I read Axios. So there's sources that I check in with every day. And what you realize over that period of time as you're checking with them every day is, one, it's fascinating to watch what they pick as a top story every day. It's fascinating to watch how that story shifts and changed over time. So I didn't sit down and do hours of research on COVID-19 and how it's shifted and changed in different geographic areas in the country or figured out what are the important data points to pay attention to. But in doing that for 10 to 15 minutes every day since March, I've learned a lot, right? And instead of picking the information and sort of following an algorithm of information, it's actual human beings (laughs) <laughs> making decisions about this news and this story. And I can I can watch their decision-making over time. I might disagree with it sometimes. I often do. But I'm still getting information, to me, that's prone to those flaws in reasoning if I went out there and said, like, I'm going to get on Google and figure this out myself. So that's what I always tell people. I think that it's really important to follow one source a little bit every single day. I think that's how you become a better informed citizen. I really want to linger on your point that you sometimes disagree, even with a source like Up First, which aims to be more objective. 
than opinion media. I think that's important. I think that if you are listening to what is supposed to be an objective curation of news stories and you don't find yourself thinking, oh, I wouldn't have prioritized that, or I think that spin is a little off, I think they're missing something, I hear some bias here, then you're not thinking hard enough. You know, people Mm -hmm. send us emails that are like, gosh, I'm so sorry. I almost always agree with you, but I really disagree with you about that. Don't be sorry. Again, if if you are listening to us and not disagreeing with some regularity, then either we're not thinking hard enough or you aren't or both, right? We should have that disagreement. That's really important to good, conscious media consumption. And that's why I think the arguments that we tend to have Um, within our personal spheres of influence, especially on social media, this sort of war of the sources is so silly. I never want to 100% be defending a source on every single story. What I do want to say is over time, if you're asking me who to trust, I would say you trust CBS and NBC and ABC because those sources are subject to so much public scrutiny that when they get something wrong, there will be pressure to fix it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's same thing. New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, when they get something wrong, there will be enough scrutiny to cause them to fix it. And I also think that's why local news is so important and why it is so devastating that local news has either been bought out to the point where it is not truly local anymore or just abandoned. Because Mm -hmm. when the local paper gets something wrong, there is a lot of pressure to get that corrected. I used to complain when I was a new mom about the stories that were like, have a good stroller. Okay, that's helpful. Tell me which strollers are good. So I want to be explicit in saying there are some news sources that I find more dependable And news I lean towards and others I stay away from. So I just want to be pretty explicit in what I've noticed, especially since starting starting the podcast and engaging with the news in a much more um, conscious and um, regular way. I do not watch cable news ever, never. I just don't engage with it. I think it is psychologically stressful, anxiety producing, and I do not like the way um, that the information is presented with to me or how I'm invited or not invited to engage with it. So l- let me just say that right now. I don't engage with c- cable news. I don't got time for it. I don't watch cable news. I've also noticed over time that I don't like news sources that use a very anecdotal approach to sharing what's going on in the world. And I'm going to put two news sources that probably people don't expect me to put together. But I don't love it at Fox News. I think Fox News is the worst about it. So many of their homepages and their stories are anecdotal stories. So what I mean is, like, these are the stories of individual. Oh, we'll see what happened to this teacher or what happened to this police officer. Or can you believe this liberal movie star said or did this? And so that really bugs me. And the other site that I have stopped engaging with over time, because I think they do a lot of the same thing, is Washington Post. I think there's a lot of anecdotal stories. I think there's a lot of incendiary headline writing. Now, I do like the Washington Post print edition, and I will read that on the app on Sundays. But for the most part, I find myself turning away from sources that depend on that anecdotal, very emotional approach, because I just think it triggers 
a part of our brain that doesn't do its best decision making. And I just think it, it's it's the worst of I'm not telling you what's happening. I'm trying to tell you how to feel. And I don't think people like that. And I think there's a good reason that they don't like that. I like news sources that are trying to find bigger trends among the, you know, ceaseless flow of information and data that we receive every day, be it about COVID-19 or foreign policy or the 2020 campaign. And so I really like Axios. I really like Politico. I do like the New York Times. They are not perfect, but I think they lean more towards that bigger information approach. And when they do share anecdotal stories, I think they set it up like, we are going to just try to put you on the ground here and not inflame your emotions. That's my perspective after engaging with these sources repeatedly for many years. What do you think, Beth? I am also ready to declare that cable news was an interesting experiment and we're done with it now because for the most part, I think cable news, with even some really good journalists doing work there, really trying to make it uh, live up to our ideals of journalism, I just think the pressure to program constantly prevents genuine reflection and lends Mm -hmm. itself to more cult of personality. And I'm just not interested in that. So I, I used to watch more cable news than I do now. There's been a gradual erosion. And at this point in my life, I just want to read my news. Reading the news for me provides a lot more clarity than anything else. If I actually want to understand the facts, I want to read them. And I do like to read them in the New York Times. I like to read the Wall Street Journal. I like to read some of what Washington Post does. I agree with you about sort of the framing and the prioritization there. I want to give some grace around that, though, because you said people don't like it. I think people don't like it when they are aware it's happening, but people sure do respond to it. I mean, that's why Fox News is so popular, because people really respond. It is easier to be drawn into a story about a person than about a country or an idea. And that is unfortunate. But part of, I think, being a citizen in the process of news consumption is observing those tendencies in yourself. What do I tend to click? What is drawing me in? I really like using Twitter in the sense of curated lists. Like we follow a list of women who are scholars about Western Asia. And so when I am in a good space to really take in information about what's going on in Iraq, Iran, and Syria, I go to that list and I know I'm getting links to articles that are going to give me good information about that part of the world. That's a really different thing than being just in my general feed and noticing what I start to click. So that consciousness part of it is really important. I like email newsletters. I do like Axios because I like that you get an industry and culture perspective along with sort of that news and politics lens. I think that's really helpful. I like CNN's top five every day. I too am really interested in comparing what stories get elevated across platforms, Mm -hmm. what they decide the most people are going to be interested in or what they think is most important. If I want to learn something, I go to The Atlantic. If I want an opinion piece, I go to The Atlantic. I do not like the New York Times opinion pieces. I just, I have decided that too much of the New York Times has become about that opinion page. And that is where the New York Times hits these big Twitter moments unless they're breaking a big piece of investigative journalism. And I just don't, I I think it has become too 
prominent to the point that so many people in my life don't trust the New York Times based on those opinion pieces. So I've really stopped reading their opinion pages. If I want that sort of analysis, I'm going to the Atlantic for it. I think that's a really good sort of distinction, too. Where do you go to engage with the news and where do you go to engage with that cultural debate? It's exactly what we're talking about, that distinction. you got to sort of pull apart. Am I trying to get information or am I trying to engage in the public square in that debate? And so, you know, I also want to add that there's lots of really cool up and coming independent sources. I like the new paper. That's another email newsletter that just hits the facts, hits those five things pretty quickly. I think I've talked about Heather Cox Richardson on this podcast before. I think she's grown so tremendously because she does a really good mix of here's what's happening. Let me help you provide context. I like to think that that's why people like our show, because, you know, I'm saying let's pull them apart. But sometimes you can't. Sometimes there's a space where you need to say, oh, well, this is new information. Can you help me think about it? And look, that's a fine line to walk in media independent or otherwise, in the public square with our own relatives. That distinction of something's happening, we're gaining new information, and we don't have a lot of context for it. You know, I think Facebook is probably the worst place to do that because social media is absence of context anyway. But I mean, I think that just that awareness of like, when are we trying to do both at the same time is really important. And not because we can't, we can avoid ever trying to do both at the same time, but at least when we We have that awareness and we can see, Okay, wait, we're learning something new and trying to decide how we think about it at the same time. That's really hard. Right. That's a really hard thing to do. You know, I don't when I want to learn and I want to hear what people are thinking about it. I love podcasts. I particularly like long form podcasts. I am a huge fan of the Ezra Klein show because I think he does that really well. It sounds like we're having a new debate here. Let's piece it apart. And like I think sometimes it's just personality like. How do you learn? Do you Are you an auditory learner? Are you a visual learner? Like, you know, some of that understanding those parts of yourself in your own just personality is really important. You know, that's important in all forms of, I think, learning and debate. What's going to trigger you? Where do you learn the most easily? What are your emotional hotspots when it comes to public debate or public policy? You know, that greater awareness when we're talking about how to be a citizen, how am I as a citizen, how do I engage um, in the public debate as a citizen or with my government, like that's all really, really important. And you only learn that stuff through practice. I think that's right. One more thing that I look for when I am kind of assessing the credibility of a piece or an outlet is a link to primary sources. Now, I get that I have a law degree and experience practicing, and so I have a greater skill set in engaging with the text of draft legislation or a Supreme Court opinion or an executive order. I do not think the general public has to be able to read all of the primary sources that I read to formulate my understanding of things. And I think a, a downfall of our government, even though it is supposed to be a citizen government, is that those documents are often really inaccessible if you don't have a ton mm-hmm. of background. Yeah, But... I want news outlets to show their work. I want a link to that original document in a story telling me about it. And I think that that is an important indicator of a relationship of trust between a news outlet and the people using that news outlet. 
I totally agree. I think that's really, really, really important. And that's what I criticized the Tucker Carlson show, which I really am loath to include in a conversation about news because I don't think that's what it is. But it is that lack of like that link, that link to the source document. Like, do you not trust me? Like, or are you trying to play on the fact that I might not have time to go search it out? That really bugs me. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. reasons we wanted to do this series is that we get so many questions about, okay, I've learned that it's really important to vote. I've learned that it's really important to vote down the ballot. I don't know how to do that. I don't know Mm -hmm. how to pick 
among the 10 people on the ballot for my city council or who to vote for for my state rep of my two options. So I would love to hear, Sarah, how you go about making those decisions and finding that information when we know that local media is so scarce to come by. So this is really interesting because my community is in the middle of a debate about local media right now. We are blessed in that we have a daily newspaper and a locally based news station owned by a Paducah family that has owned them for generations. And so in that way, we're what everybody says they want. And in another way, you know, even if you have the locally owned source, they are responding to the same market pressure that all local news sources are responding to. They are really focused on views on the website, on the station. They're concerned about advertising because that is the source of main source of their revenue. They've dramatically cut their staff. Um, the staff is not particularly well treated and are starting to sort of what we're in the middle of here now is the staff is st- current staff and former staff is really are really starting to speak out against the ownership and against particularly the management, um, which has shifted dramatically to a different type of coverage in the last few months. And so we're in this weird space, right? We have what everybody wants. We have this local news source and we think it is fueling the same problems instead of keeping an informed local citizens. It's fueling just, you know, conflict and controversy and is really just not stewarding. I've been thinking about this a lot because it's not... I think it, the reason this is in, informative and important is it's just not that easy to have. Just say, well, we just need local news. This is a big issue for all citizens because it is an industry issue that I think there's room for innovation. There's room for citizen involvement to say, I know you've done it this way, but let's do it different. It is really important because they do. They publish You know, when I ran for city commission, our local paper published a huge pullout section where you could read about every single candidate in their own words, what they cared about, what they wanted to work on for city commission races. And I know that that is something, you know, millions of Americans would love to have just a simple contained. Here are the candidates in their own words about what they stand for and what they want to work on. And so. I think that this particular issue of local news is just like so many other things. (laughs) COVID has exposed that we're sort of at an inflection point because the story that broke open the treatment in particular of the employees was that the management instructed our local news employees to not get tested for COVID-19 unless under certain circumstances. And the memo got leaked. And then here we are. So I love having that source. And I also think It's not as simple as just having that source, that as citizens, we have to engage with those local news sources way beyond just complaining on their Facebook threads or bemoaning that we don't have one and thinking about, okay, if we want this, what do we want it to look like? What do we want it to be? What do we want the responsibility of that local news source to be in the community? And I think that's a bigger question. But I mean, I do depend on those sources. I really also just in my local community depend on my friends and family and acquaintances in my larger network. Do you know this person? Have you worked with them? What did you think? 
almost just like you would any other hiring decision. What were their jobs in the past? Or, you know, again, like that phone a friend. You, We all know we have that friend who's like super active in party politics and probably knows this person, probably knows half the people on the ballot. And you can talk to them and figure that out and think through that person's past experiences, what that person's priorities are in the office, and whether or not they align with your values. You know, local news is a good example, too, of how our online culture dies as soon as you step onto actual earth. Because in Twitterverse, if you don't like the way a news outlet is treating its staff, the answer becomes cancel your subscription. In Paducah, Kentucky, if you're concerned about how the local paper is treating its staff, if you cancel your subscription, you've lost all influence over that question. Mm -hmm. Unless you are willing to just let your only local news source die. And maybe sometimes the problems are great enough that that is the answer and somebody else comes in or new ownership or whatever. But you really do need to have a relationship to have influence at at that local media level. Um, I agree with you about tapping into your network about knowing people locally. And and that's obviously going to vary with the size of the city that you're in. And and all, a lot of factors are going to change that. My problem is that so often we start with what does this person stand for or what are people saying about them instead of what's the job that we're trying to fill? And I that really bothers me in social media world where we assess a person through the lens of their tweets without asking whether that sort of PR side is relevant to the position. Every Mm -hmm. year before an election on Facebook, I try to go through and put the best link that I found about each candidate that will be on my ballot uh, in a thread of comments, just to say to friends and family, here's what I know about what we're going to go vote for. And people have come to expect that from me. Uh, Because it is so hard. It's way too hard to find out who's running for local offices. So it takes me a lot of time. Beth is everybody's phone a friend in some (laughs) way. Well, and it, it takes a lot of time to put that together. It's really frustrating how hard it is. And I often am not satisfied with what I'm able to provide. But last year, it occurred to me that I wasn't giving people the right context. Like I was saying, here are... Uh, Joan and Sam running for this office, but I didn't say Joan and Sam are running for constable. Here's what the constable does. I mean, who Mm -hmm. really knows what the constable does and why we elect that person? So I'm trying to do a better job saying, okay, as we assess Joan and Sam, what are we looking for? Because these are the duties that person has. And so here's how I use social media in that context. For me, if I know nothing about the people running, I try to understand what the office is. I try to find what I can find about those people. And then I look at their social media as an opportunity for disqualification only. I do not care how good Mm. somebody is at Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. What I care about is how they treat people who are interacting with them in those spaces. So if you are running for city council and I see you going 20 comments deep with folks who are obviously trolling you, I don't think you're going to have a very good focus and emotional perspective to handle that job. If I see you totally not listening to people who disagree with you 
or blocking those people and kind of giggling about it or tweet shaming, like sharing the post of the nastiest thing somebody said that day so that other people will attack that person, you're, you're probably off my list. If you just aren't very good at it, I don't care. <laughs> you know, as you were talking to, I think that's an excellent perspective on using someone's performance on social media with the right context to make decisions about whether or not you want to vote for them. But as you were talking about how much work that post is, you know, we keep saying community citizenship is a community act. So it it occurs to me that there's no reason you couldn't split up a ballot amongst a group of friends in the same way that people in California split up those giant books on the referendums they have to vote on. You know, like if you feel overwhelmed and you have, you know, three or four friends that you think, I bet they are overwhelmed by this too, and we all want to have better information, then divide it up. Say, okay, I'll take the constable. I'll figure out what the heck the constable does and who these two people are. You figure out the city commission race or you figure out the the local judge race. Like, I think that that would be an excellent way to engage and to learn and to share ideas and perspectives in a way that could really inform the decision that you're making on your ballot. You know, we talked about this with Michael and Chris in the Federalist Papers of factions less as parties and factions more as really fundamental values or misunderstandings amongst Americans. I think that you could divide the United States into two factions over reproductive rights. It is shocking to me how often political arguments break down into, oh, yeah, well, and then insert ideological argument about abortion. See, I think elites elites have broken down into two groups about abortion. I'm not sure if that's true about the public. I think you'd be surprised. I think you'd be surprised how often, you know, out in western Kentucky, you start to talk about the pandemic. You start to talk about you know, it feels like all roads and political conversation leads back to you're irrelevant because you disagree with me on this. And clearly we have a fundamental disagreement about values in life and whatever, insert the argument there. Like, so let's just say we're not talking about parties. I feel like that's a faction that we can't find our way out of. Right. Yeah, that, that would be my argument. Is the connecting point here that political parties circa, I don't know, 1900 were something different than factions, but that maybe today's political parties, which are not that strong in terms of organizing and electing mm-hmm. people, that, mm-hmm. that we really are using party more interchangeably with faction today than we would have at other points in our history. No, that's interesting. Well, the parties are incredibly strong within within legislatures. And they, they organize and control legislatures. Partisanship is as strong as it's ever been because people are voting on the basis of their party queue uh, more than at any other time. The case of abortion, you know, actually that's one where the parties pretty well represent the two poles. Mm-hmm. And, and so in, in some ways, the one of the main dividing lines between the Democratic and Republican parties right now is the abortion issue. So. I, I guess you could call it a faction, but I mean, the Republican Party, which is the pro-life political party, is also a party of many other uh, interests, because when you have two parties, each is a coalition of a set of interests. 
yeah. and interest groups and people that have that interest in, in all of that. Uh, you know, so maybe we get into semantics a little bit if we focus too much on, on Madison's notion of what a faction was and whether he meant a party or whether he meant an interest group or, I mean, I think what, what he was really getting at there is that it was going to be fragmentation that was desirable, right. uh, that you needed it to control any kind of majority that could be quite destructive from emerging. Uh, you know, you read their language. To me, that's what they were always afraid of. They talked about passions uh, sweeping through the country. You know, the idea that something would come up and people would go for it. And, you know, they were very clear about what the lines of faction could be. And they, you know, they could be between the landowners and those who don't own land, between those who have a lot of money and those who don't. Uh, could be they even said along religious lines or something like that. So they knew there'd be all this conflict among them. And they just wanted more and more of it so that any one majority could not emerge. This is why we stagger elections, you know, because they were really afraid that some passion would sweep through society and take over the government, which could happen in Europe, you know, in many, many democracies. It happened in the United States. That's what the Civil War was. But it has to be sustained. You know, so from there, from the way they designed it, something has to be sustained over many, many years. Because let's say that this election is a negative referendum on Trump in as strong a degree as you could imagine. You still only have one third of the Senate up. And there are still many governors that are not up for reelection. Just like we were talking about, like there are factions. They're not moving. They're not going to move. So what do we do then as citizens when we feel stuck when we feel shut down, when we feel, you know, we've been getting a lot of emails recently where it's, you know, it's not that they disagree. I see hatred. I see that this, oh, well, if you disagree with me, you hate America. Or I think about Anne Helen Peterson's reporting from Bethel, where she, they, the protesters say, I looked in the eyes and I saw no empathy. So what happens when as citizens we're at a complete and total impasse and conversation and connection doesn't feel possible because I know that that is something we all struggle with. My first suggestion is to figure out exactly where you are and why you're there because I do think when everything is as charged as it is right now, it feels like every disagreement is a fundamental disagreement. And mm -hmm. so making enough room for some disagreements not to be fundamental, to just be disagreements about priorities or emphasis, not to immediately assume that we are worlds apart. Mm -hmm. When we are worlds apart, the context matters a lot to me. I think you want to have a different kind of conversation if you're worlds apart with a family member than if you're worlds apart with a neighbor or an employer or someone at your church. You know, if, if you're worlds apart within your family, that's a really good place to step back and say, how did we get here? We have mm -hmm. so much in common. We've experienced so many of the same things. What is causing us to view this so differently? And then to ask, does that matter? Where could this become extremely relevant to our everyday lives that we have this fundamental disagreement. That's easy to see in the midst of a pandemic. It's harder to see 
depending on your family's socioeconomic status, depending on the race of the people who live in your household, it can be harder to see in everyday life. And so kind of clarifying, okay, what's the nature of the disagreement? What's the source of the disagreement? What do we want to do when this isn't theoretical? When I think about this vague notion we have about the state of America or the state of American politics or polarization, these sort of words we use to describe lots and lots and lots of cultural realities that we're all dealing with, it helps me to think about history. It helps me to think that this is not the first time or the last time in American history where we will feel like we're living in two different countries or even on two different planets from some of our fellow citizens. You know, I think you you hear that in particularly Madison's writing in the Federalist Papers. Like, And again, it's sort of baked into the process. This is inevitable, right? There's just too many people. We kind of want it that way. Democracy is hard. You get that many humans in the room. They're not all going to agree. It's not just that they're not going to agree. They are going to passionately <laughs> disagree. And so that there's an aspect that I have to just like constantly plug into of we are not the first ones to deal with this. America has survived times of intense polarization, of intense disagreement. So I kind of always have to keep that as my North Star. Okay. And then there's always an aspect for me of is there something bigger going on here? Is there something bigger going on with the proliferation of conspiracy theories? Is there something bigger going on in the public debate when people keep waving the free speech flag? Is there something bigger going on when Donald Trump wins the presidency? And those sort of cultural examinations, and they can be really fraught when you do them in a public square. You know, I say that as a podcaster. Like, it's hard to say, wait, what's going on here? Should we pay attention to the white voter in Michigan? Or are we going to get yelled at for that? You know, should we listen to J.K. Rowling's concerns about free speech, or is the bigger issue the transphobic nature of her statements? And if I ask that publicly, am I going to get shut down? You know, I think that there's this really weighted nature of the public aspect of, of engaging in a debate as a citizen that we always have to give ourselves a lot of grace about, give each other a lot of grace about. And it's, it's you know, that's what we wrote our book about. It's why we think that this has to be a practice, that you have to see that there can be fallout or you can get it wrong and the sun will still shine and no one has revoked your citizenship because you took a wrong stance or you learned. But, I, you know, I think a lot about our relationship with all of you. And I think some of that is because from the beginning of this podcast, we've said we don't know or we got it wrong or we're sorry. We have a different relationship and a different trust with our audience than you see with sort of the Twitter class, which is 
I'm going to be sure about it. I'm going to be sure enough about it to sum it up and not very much, many characters and press post. It's just, it's a different back and forth. And, you know, it rewards that sort of righteousness that I'm not saying is never present on our podcast, especially coming from my mouth. But, you know, it just doesn't build a lot of trust. And I think in our public square right now, as Americans, because we've lost trust in so many institutions, there's just a lack of trust with each other. And I don't know the solution to that, but I do know that living with it, being aware of it, realizing that it's fraught because we don't trust each other. We don't trust ourselves. We don't trust the media. We don't trust the government. We don't trust each other. We don't trust the parties. I can go on and on and on. And it's wearing us all down. And at a certain point, you know, trusting, and often I think that the decision to trust looks a lot like grace, is just going to have to start being a decision we make. And we'll probably get burned and we'll probably get it wrong. But, you know, the absence of trust within the sort of quote-unquote public square is, you know, one of my biggest concerns as a citizen and one I don't have the answer to, but I don't think one person's going to fix it either. I think it is going to be all of us deciding we're going to step out with a certain amount of faith that this is important, even though we don't trust the other side, we don't trust the institutions to protect us, We don't even sometimes trust our own information (laughs) or the facts we're trying to gather. And but I think we just are going to have to say this is how it is. And we're going to try to move forward anyway, because I don't really know the alternative. I don't think there is one. I think we have to have that debate. It always and forever will involve a certain amount of risk. And if we're looking to step out and move as citizens with total control and no risk, especially in the public square, about issues of culture and identity and values. It's just not available to us. We're going to have to let that go. I think it's also really important that we get clear about the stakes of these things in our own lives versus the lives of people we follow on Twitter or otherwise. Because the risk to you of cancel culture uh, is likely different than the risk to a New York Times opinion writer or Matt Lauer, or, you know, if Louis C.K. is your model for worrying about your own political speech or your own behavior, that's that's probably pretty disconnected from the reality of the stakes in your situation. And I think about this with our podcast all the time. We are in a space where, yeah, cancel culture has a risk. We could do or say something where people decide those two shouldn't have a platform anymore. The stakes of that are different than household names who do the same kind of thing. And the stakes of that are different than my life before this podcast. And I'm worried that one of the impacts of social media in that quest to be democratizing and equalizing of all people is that we are layering on to our personal situations the sorts of stakes that accompany celebrity all the time. But I mean, then you have the the nurse in my hometown who spoke out, said some really racist stuff on Facebook, got fired, and she was nobody. And like those cases, 
they spread like wildfire and they make people feel like, well, I might not be Matt Lauer. I'll be nobody and they'll still come after my job. Yeah. And I mean, that exists. But I I do wonder sometimes if we aren't eroding trust further by not being willing to have a different kind of conversation in our own circles of influence. So when you think about somebody said the wrong thing on Facebook and it spreads like wildfire, that does raise the stakes. It's really different, I think, than asking a genuine question or expressing a genuine difference of opinion in a physical space with other people who you know. Mm -hmm. And to me, we erode trust the most when we're in those physical spaces with people we know and we act out of such a sense of insecurity that no one really learns anything about anyone else. And we say things like, well, I don't want to get political or I don't want to bring politics into it or or we're just weird about stuff. You know, I would just rather people say it, even if I'm going to totally disagree with them. Trust can only be built, I think, when the cards are on the table. I've had so many discussions lately with people close to me who have said, just do I have to vote for Joe Biden? And it's to me, such a gift that they trust me enough to bring that topic up, the only way for me to meet that question is to say, yes, I think you do. It's really important (laughs) to me that you do that. Whereas another version of me, a more insecure version of me, would have said, well, here's how I see it. There's this Mm -hmm. and there's that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. but I'm really trying to lean in to my relationships and trust those relationships to weather it, even if that person says, well, I'm not going to. And I can say, well, I really hope you rethink that. I really want you to. <laughs> you know, um, I, I feel and and a lot of that, Sarah, is your influence and the influence of our listeners and the fact that people trust us on this show to share our opinions. But I see so much that that blatant honesty builds trust much more mm-hmm. than the kind of mealy mouth. Well, you know, just whatever everybody thinks that doesn't work. And that's part of why we all go off on Facebook because it's the only place where people feel like they can. And that's yeah, that's where it gets fraught. <laughs> Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. 
that's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Well, here's a question I have for you, because I think part of the issue here, too, and I do think I've seen this shift over my own lifetime. Americans have always loved to have opinions. I'm not arguing that that has not always been the case. But there does seem to be, as more of our political spaces and our political debates and our policy debates became about fundamental issues of identity, there became this confusion or this joining of the idea that my opinion is my identity. And if you if if you are using your identity to push a policy position, then my opposition to that is also my identity. So if you're saying my fundamental issues of identity, LGBTQ, inform my policy position and I'm opposed to you, then that opinion takes on the same weight as something identity-driven that a, a person can't change about themselves. And I think, like, I'll never forget one time sitting around the table and my family member saying, I mean, well, that's my opinion. It can't be wrong. And I said, no, of course your opinion can be wrong. Of course you can have an opinion that is wrong. But you hear that kind of bubble up. Well, I have a right to my opinion. What does that mean? <laughs> do you have a right to your opinion? Yeah. Do you have a, a right to form an opinion? Sure. Does that mean that no one can disagree with you or say you are, in fact, wrong and you suffer consequences from that opinion? Of course not. Is that the same thing as saying I have a right to exist as an LGBTQ person? I have a right to exist as a person of color without oppression? No, it's not the same. But it's like they're all starting to 
meld together. And I feel like that's where the distrust comes from. And that's why it feels like in so many issues in the public square, we are talking past each other. As I see it in my life experience, which is limited, admittedly, usually the conversations where someone is expressing an opinion that is on that identity level as to someone else and someone else in the conversation whose identity is not threatened by it becomes the person who says, no, you can't feel that way. It's not okay. I find that those conversations usually happen among people with a certain amount of privilege attached to it. Mm -hmm. When I talk to people who are LGBTQ or Black or, you know, name your group of people who have for too long been marginalized and treated cruelly and oppressed in our system. If I say to those people, you know, do you love someone who's racist or homophobic or whatever? The answer is always yes, because there's no other option. You know, most people who are in those oppressed groups, I find to be much more grace filled than people of privilege arguing about this as a matter of theory and more willing to continue to push against those wrong opinions and more willing to keep showing up and having the conversation. They shouldn't have to, right? Those of us with the privilege should be doing that for them. I think sometimes in our quest to do it for them, we co-opt the whole thing in a way that turns it into something that it shouldn't be, in a way that's disconnecting instead of advancing the goal. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay, so then the question is, as citizens, how do we deal with privilege? in the public square that is invisible to the person asserting it. I think that's just, you know, a continuous, we don't deal with it in one conversation. That's a big part of cancel culture, right? There's the, the weight of every choice is viewed singularly instead of as part of a larger body of worker exploration. So that's one issue. And being a citizen means being in it for the long haul instead of having everything be judged in isolation. Okay, so piece one. Piece two, to me, is as part of that overarching relationship, you keep talking about it and you keep finding new ways to talk about it. You know, Chad and I just had a a really somewhat heated conversation about Joe Biden's announcement that he would select a woman as his vice president. And we got to it because as we were speculating about who it might be, I said, I think it would be a real mistake not to choose a black woman. And Chad said, that is so reductive. And we had this conversation about privilege without ever using the word privilege, but that's what it was about. Because what we got to is when Joe Biden said he was going to choose a woman, Chad heard, I feel like I have to choose a woman. I'm going to pander to the people who wanted Elizabeth Warren. Mm. I need to get everybody on board. And I heard For far too long, over 50% of the population has not been represented, and I recognize that there's no reason for that. And so I am making the commitment and recognizing the limitations of my own experience and promising you that I will shore it up with someone who has different experience. And Chad was like, well, that's a nice speech you wrote, but that's not the one he gave. And, And I get that. But at the same time, you know, the more we fleshed it out, I ended up saying, Chad, you cannot fathom what it was like for me to listen to men in their 50s and 60s explain to me why young women stop practicing law. 
Like over and over, the story is written by the same people. All I'm telling you is I want new people to write the story. And he said, and I'm sorry to like do this dramatic retelling of our conversation, but I promise (laughs) it's connected to what we're talking about. He said, I get it. All other things being equal, it would be good to have new people in representation. And the discussion that we came to is like, there's an assumption in that that all other things aren't equal. And that's the assumption that we have to keep pushing against. And so when we're trying to tackle privilege in the public square, I think the the job is not to say, oh, my God, you're so privileged. Shut up. It is to say, let's examine what I hear behind the words, all other things being equal. I hear an assumption Mm -hmm. that women are inherently less qualified than men, that a black woman would be inherently less qualified than a white woman. We need to Mm -hmm. examine those assumptions and and rewire ourselves to assume that all other things are equal. Of course they are. There are plenty of people who could do that job. I do think there's this aspect of engaging in politics, engaging in public debate, that there's no space for what's underneath this because we're so pressed we're so fired up the stakes are so high our time is limited before somebody shuts it down or somebody gets mad or somebody walks away and so there's just this sense of like can we just take time with this can we see what else is going on here because there's almost always something else going on there and i do think that just as throughout this series we've been talking about Let's do this a little deeper. Let's see what's underneath our connection to the community. Let's see what's underneath the way our government is set up. Let's see what is behind our media consumption. Just that level of awareness. If as a citizen, however you're engaging with media, with your neighbors, with the government, it's just a level of awareness. Is, is, there, is there something else going on here? For me or for the, the person or institution I'm engaged with, that willingness to give the benefit of the doubt, to say, maybe this person is not actually telling me that they want everyone to die of COVID-19. Like, I feel like they're telling me right now. It's just, it's so hard because this stuff touches on, I mean, you need like Jedi level emotional control. If somebody is talking about an issue of identity that directly affects you or somebody you love, um, healthcare, if you survived a healthcare crisis, um, education, if you have a child with special needs, like that just, that stuff is so deep and it affects every area of our lives. And as citizens to say, I see that, I feel it, it is essential to me. And also this connection I have to the institution or to my neighbor or to my community is an another essential part of who I am. It's another really important identity that I hold. To balance those two energies, it's hard. It's really, really hard. It, it is both hard and it is just the essential work of being human, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think the more we connect it to other ways of being human, that's why I like parenting as a metaphor. Yeah. The more we find our capacity to do it, the more we see it as worthy for us. So even if I never persuade anyone 
to vote for Joe Biden in those opportunities that I have to have that conversation. It is worth it for me to listen to them, to hear the question. Mm -hmm. What's behind that question? It's worth it for me to have to articulate what's important to me about it. I get better every time. And I think that part of what drains our energy as we engage as citizens, even if we really want to do it well, we are still operating under a rubric of, ultimately, I've got to win. I have to persuade. Mm -hmm. Things have to come out my way. My candidate has to get elected. My legislation has to be passed. And part of what I really value in the Federalist Papers is a recognition throughout that this is not going to be perfect. That something mm -hmm. is going to get lost along the way. We are going to lose sometimes. We are going to lose things. There are so many references to, hopefully we have enlightened people doing this, but we know that enlightened people will not always be at the helm. Hopefully we get this right more often than not, but there are going to be times when our self-interests dominate. And I just don't think we do enough of that. We were just talking, uh, Sarah, the other day about masks and this whole ridiculous cultural debate about masks. And... For me, the aha moment about it is you've got a certain portion of America really angry if their local officials have not mandated masks. You know, they want the government to solve this problem for us. And then we've got a certain percentage of people really angry that they've ever been made to feel bad because they don't want to wear a mask. And what both groups are really saying is, I don't want to lose anything in this process, even if all I lose are my feelings. You know, mm -hmm. and that is not the assumption on which America is built. We are built on the idea that you're going to lose stuff all the time slugging this out because that's mm -hmm. how we protect your right to feel differently about things. Yeah, I think a lot about pressure valves when I think about my role as a citizen, especially sort of in the public square, which is sometimes in American history, we had to screw it tight and let the pressure build or out of ignorance and deliberate, willful neglect, we let the pressure build to the point where the explosion made change. And I do think that there is truth to systems of power don't willfully give up their power and that there is truth that you need that pressure to really make dramatic changes. And also, I think in our system of government, and especially in local matters, especially in one-on-one -on -one conversations, there's a real role to releasing some of the pressure, just letting some of the pressure go. Because while we need explosions for dramatic change, we cannot live in that state for too long. Witness people pulling guns on each other in checkout lines over mask wearing. Like, it's just, it's a powder keg. And I think there is so much space to ask ourselves, where can I relieve some of the pressure? Where can I just say, you know what? We talked about this a lot on the show. There was a lot of confusion about masks in the beginning. I agree with you. Nothing's lost when you say that. Nothing's lost. I think there's a lot more room in Congress to give the other side some small wins. That part is messy, and it's never going to look like 
a philosophical Twitter fight, right? Like in Congress, just like at that first sweltering Continental Congress, like it's messy. It's messy and everybody has to give something up. And knowing, I think the best people who, you know, our best leaders got that. Where's the spot that I can relieve some of that pressure and give them a win? Because in certain areas of our democracy, when those explosions, sometimes they result in dramatic and worthwhile change. And sometimes they result in the election of Donald Trump. And so I think about that a lot as a citizen. Like, where is the pressure right now? Is it good pressure? Is it productive pressure? Or is there space to relieve some of that on everyone? I think you're so right about that, Sarah. And I think too often we feel responsibility for relieving that pressure at the individual level. Yep. And what we have in America right now is a situation where we need process releases of pressure. Mm-hmm. We need to look at the ways in which systems yep. are creating and worsening pressure and where really consensus-based changes to those systems could relieve that pressure for everyone so that we get to a healthier level of discussion about what we want in terms of policy. So yep. join us on Friday as we get to some of those systems reforms. We're going to have Professor Josh Douglas back to talk about that. Cynthia Terrell will be with us to talk about that. And we're going to get into everything from gerrymandering to ranked choice voting. You won't want to miss it. Thank you so much for joining us. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsy Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen, David McWilliams, Allie Edwards, Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph, Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia, Lori Lodow, Emily Neasley, Allison Luzader, Tracy Putoff, Jared Minson. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.